Good afternoon, family. Let's listen to some podcasts from the Anchor.fm, a show called WHBLE, Whole Body Liberation. Education presents education as liberation. The founder, Akisha McCants. In episode 12, I could be the one I'm looking for with the nurse. It should tell us something we really need to hear for self-care. It's 41 minutes, 28 seconds. It was recorded on August 25th. That was Tuesday. Let's give a listen. Welcome to Whole Body Literacy and Education's podcast, Education is Liberation, hosted by me. I'm Akisha McCants, founder and consultant at WholeBodyLiteracy.com. We make art. We make change. We activate and inspire community connection while encouraging collective literacies and using media and arts to continue the conversation. Sponsored by Black History Mini Docs. To learn about our sponsors, visit blackhistoryminidocs.com. If you have 90 seconds, then you have enough time to watch Black History Mini Docs presents by legendary producer-director Nima Barnett. This podcast episode was recorded in April of 2020. So let's begin. Champagne Urbana, and 
she's also a facilitator and speaker. She travels all over the world talking to people about important topics. Welcome to Keto. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. We're super excited to have you. And I would love for you, even though I've given a little boil down of your bio, which is really impressive, would you please share more about yourself and how you came to be, you know, in the world of education and specifically in health? Absolutely. Uh, so I started my, I guess, career um, in, in undergraduate when I decided to pursue nursing. Um, and for context, I think it's just, it's kind of one of the things that people push you to do where I come from. I come from a small town in Northeast Mississippi, um, Columbus, Mississippi, which is also where my undergrad institution was. And so because I was either, if you're a girl, it seems to be that you are pushed to do nursing if you're good in like science or math, at least halfway decent. And then if you're a guy, typically um, agriculture and engineering were big things as well. So that kind of, I kind of fell into that track. Of, or at least that's kind of the way I remember it, and eventually ended up going to pursue nursing at my undergrad, Mississippi University for Women. Um, fast forward through that story, basically thought that that was exactly what I was supposed to do because what I had always been told, and then I got to the last year of my, well, I call it my first senior year, um, where I failed one of my points, failed one of my finals by a half a point, which caused me to have to sit out for an entire year. So from there... I needed to find something to do with my time, and so through different jobs and internships, I became exposed to student affairs as a career. I did realize that it was a thing. Um, I thought that if you worked at a college, you clearly had to be a professor, but didn't realize that there were so many other things to do. Um, so even though I had found something that I felt like fit a lot more, I still needed to go back and finish my nursing degree. So that kind of explains how the RN piece is still just kind of there. But it worked really well when I moved to a lot of different areas of my of my career. So right after nursing school, finished my license, uh, and then I started grad school for counselor education and student affairs administration. And so that's where my master of science is in. And it actually worked out really well. Uh, a lot of what I had already learned was super transferable and actually put me in a better position than a lot of other people because I, I tended to think more from an interdisciplinary mindset just naturally. Um, so... From there, from Mississippi State, I went to, uh, I worked in housing and res life for a number of years. Then I transitioned when I first came to Illinois as the assistant director for our Bruce Inez, the African American Cultural Center. And I would say that black cultural centers and working with black students is still my passion and still fuels a lot of the work that I do in higher education now. Um, so there were a lot of things that I learned from there, and I think I was working at the center at a really pivotal time around 2015 where a lot of stuff was happening. Um, I think the most transformational thing that I worked on was a response to Sandra Bland's passing. Um, and I worked actually really closely with her sister Sharon and we're really good friends today um, just because they're Chicago natives. We're about two hours south of Chicago. So there was a, a lot of connection there that I didn't expect to walk right into, but it, it was a very impactful moment in my life. And then after working in those situations, I transitioned to my current position now, which is specialist in education. And what's been pleasantly surprising about that role is I kind of get to do a little bit of all the things I like to do. Um, so although my role as written, I work with alcohol and other drug prevention and outreach and do tons of workshops and teaching, I also oversee our cultural competency committee for the center and get to do a lot of my diversity and inclusion work. Um, and then, but the bulk of my job, which is what I love, is working with students. Um, I get to work with students all day, every day, um, hundreds of them. So that 
that's kind of the cut and dry. I, of course, I do a lot of stuff outside of work because I can't seem to sit still. So I do do a lot of uh, workshops, work with Hathi, um as a retreat facilitator. I do a lot of independent consulting and then work with the Pedestal Project, which is my baby, um, and it's specifically for black women. It's a blog and a local organization where we do brunch events that are only for black women and wellness um, types of events as well. So I know that that was kind of lengthy, but... Hopefully that gives the trajectory of where everything fits. Wow. You know, first of all, it sounds, I, I really, coming, you know, getting to know you, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you're mentioning I know, right? Sandra Bland, <laughs> um, who was tragically murdered. Um, and I think about black women. And I, mm-hmm. your story, it, it took me on a journey through gender and performance and expectation. Um, and how yeah. that affects our mental health as black women in particular, and then how you have been able to transform and kind of um, your lived experience as a black woman and having those expectations of going to nursing school as that's the route you take, period. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's really deep. And it kind of definitely, not kind of, it definitely um, hits the hand, the, the hand on the nail uh, around liberation, and in particular, women and liberation and this gender thing, um, and this race thing as well. I went to an all-girls school in Los Angeles for high school, middle school, part of high school, middle school, and I can say, wow, we had to perform a lot. <laughs> yeah. And as a black woman, yes. whoa, we had to perform a lot. And um, yeah, it just makes me think about how important it is to talk about race and specifically women and black women in particular and how liberation conversations play out. So as a professional, I, I, I wonder what does mental health play in, in liberation and in educational settings in particular for women of color? What have you seen? Mm, I've, not enough. Um, so I think you you brought up a really good point when we talked about just like performance in general, specifically as a black woman, um, and how I, I had never realized, I guess, the performative aspect of a lot of my educational settings until way after. Like a lot of it didn't even make sense. And I think it's because it becomes so normalized, like a lot of the things that you're kind of expected to do become so normalized until you're in a new situation and you're like, wait, that was kind of that was kind of messed up. Like I probably didn't even have to experience a lot of those things, but the people around me weren't looking at things with that lens, you know. Um, so I would say now as a professional, um, my priority is is black women because it became abundantly clear to me very early in my career that black women were the only people who. Um, I felt like it had a genuine, like, I felt like we were the only ones who really had a genuine concern for other black women. And I know that that's nuanced, and I know it looks different for every black woman, so I know that's not the same for everybody. Um, but I would say an overwhelming majority of my experiences were were validated, in, and I was helped by other black women. Um, and a lot of times I didn't even know what, what was ahead. I just knew that another black woman was kind of guiding me through. Um... In terms of in terms of mental health, I think I, I'll kind of go both ways. Um, so with students, what I see right now all the time is just burnout. Um, 
burnout in so many ways, and I'm sure that mirrors the, the professional experience too. Um, but for some reason, what I see, of course, most of my black women are high achieving, um, regardless of how much work it takes for them to be high achieving. And they, it's, they always need one more thing. Um, and I know I feel like I'm speaking in overgeneralization, so I want to be clear that everybody is not the same. Um, but by and large, I've seen a lot of them just feel like, okay, I need just one more thing, and I need this thing, and then that will be enough, and, and that leads to burnout along the way. Um, and, and not necessarily a reluctance to ask for help, but feeling as if they're going to lose something by needing help. And, and so those are, those are some of the big things that I, I tend to really um, try to make space for my black women to say, like, girl, you don't have to... Like, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everything. And that is 100% okay. Um, but I think when you're, but I think going back to the performative part that you mentioned is like, that's all you've known. You know, that's, that's all you've known is to, to be that one, to be, to be the top of everything, to be the best at everything, to be the loudest, the brightest, the most stylish. Like, um, like there was no in between for black girls. So I think that that, that's a, a big part of what I, I often see in a lot of the students that I work with. And I would say a lot of that has trickled into their professional lives, too. I mean, self-included. So I, I think that there's still this, this area of wanting to make sure that from every angle you are seen as your best because you, you don't feel like you have the space to not be. So there's not a, a – I guess we can't be soft. We can't be yes, vulnerable. Yes. We can't um, be, at, you know uh, – innocent really um okay. and so you see that often in young people um on the campus and how do you what tools or what strategies do you think help for folks and it, i really bring this into liberation because if you feel this kind of burden how can you be liberated especially in an educational landscape okay. i find that the most powerful part of that is first naming it um I think that especially with with mental health and with language does a lot in terms of access and in terms of having a pathway for for figuring out what is even going on. And so I think actually getting students to name it, to say it out loud, to to say, to describe what their experience is in their own words is, is liberating in itself because no one has ever said like, oh, this is that, like this is anxiety. This, no, it's just, you know, like, they, they haven't called it out. They haven't said And so I always find that creating a space where they feel okay to say, yeah, I don't feel like I can be, um, I don't feel like I can be the person who doesn't have the correct answer all the time. And so then getting them to at least say it out loud, to, to have a starting point and to go from there and just say, okay, well, where did that message come from? Let's, let's dig a little deeper and figure out, like, where are the places where one, you saw that message implanted and, and where was it reinforced and how much of that was true. So so you have to get them to name it first. And, and I do that either through mentoring um, or I, I do healing circles every now and then, which are designed to be just debate-free spaces where people can kind of release and figure out how to make their own solutions from there. But I think I think being able to name it is, is probably the most powerful and important step say like hey i'm not okay that's that's powerful enough to just name that and say i'm not okay mm. okay now what mm. deep it's true um and then i think about students coming from high school like 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think might be something that folks need in high school settings that would help us when they go to higher ed to talk about how they're really feeling? Like, what is, I don't know, what is the cultural shift that needs to happen, do you think? Um, I think that, I think oftentimes order or this desire for order, whatever that looks like, it's such a loaded concept. But I think this desire for order doesn't make space for emotional expression. Um, and and I, I think back to even watching a lot of my nieces and nephews. I have, I have several nieces and nephews, 13, and they range in age from 21 to 4. And so watching them go through school and wanting to have a space to kind of talk through things but being told that this is not the place, this is not the time, um, we are not the people to talk to, to talk to about those things. Um, so I think that that's been like a subtle, the subtle messaging that I see in high schools is pretty consistent. Like deal with that on your own time without giving them any tools. And again, I, I can only kind of speak from a fairly limited high school experience and what students have shared with me, but it doesn't seem that there's space for that because the desire for order and achievement is a little bit greater than a desire for wholeness. trying to perform not because they want to but because it feels like there's no other way to be accepted um i remember um uh kimberly crenshaw she had that book black girls matter pushed out over police and underprotected and a lot of studies Uh have been talking about black girls being suspended from schools and i remember years ago i read this those loud black girls um by dr Mm. fordham you know and then I think back to this idea of expectation and performance. Um, what do you think about all of that? And I think, I guess, in relation to your upbringing, were, did you have a lot of women teachers of color? I mean, how did you come to understand this? Uh, you know, how to find your voice despite all of these expectations and all of these punitive measures around black womenhood and black girlhood? To be completely honest, I'm trying to think now. I, I have a handful of black women teachers uh, or women of color. Like, being from Mississippi, they were either black or white. Very little variation from there. Um, I don't, I don't, I, my blackness was something that I explored pretty early. And I think that that was, that was something, and it's always interesting that you have had to choose one or the other. Um, and so because of mentors who were mostly black men and just other people that I worked with, my, and, and because I was in 
these uh, advanced spaces where I was the only black. I explored my blackness early. Um, I don't. I don't think I explored what it meant to be a black woman, honestly, until I graduated grad school. Mm, and <laughs> yeah, and I because I'm really, I'm really trying to think through what there. And again, that was one of those like hindsight things, and that was what propelled the rest of me asking questions like, well, why? Why is this the expectation for me? Why is this my experience? Why? Why are these things being projected onto me? I, I just never, you know how you just kind of go through the motions of, of yeah. I was going through the motions of being a black girl um, and didn't think about what that meant until much later in adulthood. So um, it's, it's difficult to pinpoint where. I'm not quite sure where, but I, I, I know it was much later in adult life mm. when I started to think about that. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's um, I have a daughter and I find myself really having to think about, you know, wow, she's a young black girl, and I've, you know, working through being in a predominantly white institution at one point as a, you know, elementary school, now she's homeschooled, and we've been able to really surface up a lot of the the traumas, quite frankly, that she's experienced uh-huh. being the only, and I've been the only, and I, I that very much feels like a very limiting place to be, and so I wonder how... Have your experiences in educational work, you know, really helped you to define a vision around liberation for women, specifically women of color? Is there a vision that you think would be, you know, one you want to share? Sure. So I, I think when you when you mentioned that part, if I if I could kind of characterize how I felt, I felt like I had to be in, for my academic self. I was two different taquitos, mm-hmm. and so. Um, in my, in the classroom mostly, that had to be one type of taquita because it was a mostly white space. Like in nursing school, I was one of like maybe three or four in my original class. In my grad program, I was the only black person. Um, and so that looked very different versus like being in community with my friends who may not have been in some of my classes or, um, just were in different academic settings for whether they were at different schools or whatever, that taquita was a very different taquita than the taquita who was in the classroom. And I think, um, if I, if I had to think about how that fits into my vision for black women now is, is I really operate from this perspective that all parts of you are welcome here. Um, and all parts of you belong in whichever space you occupy so not feeling as if you need to turn off your curiosity and not ask the hard-hitting critical questions um, when you're with your homegirls or like not feeling as if you because your your opinions don't reflect the majority of the people in the room that they're invalid so so thinking about how how to get people to be comfortable with bringing their full selves into every space um is probably the most, I would say one of the most things, most important things for me to make sure that black women understand in my work with them is that all parts of you matter, all parts of you are welcome, um, and you don't have to compartmentalize which parts make other people comfortable. Um, I'm, when I talk to my mentees, I'm pretty direct, and I say, you know, because they're like, well, I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. And I was like, so why should it be you? Why should you be the one in the room uncomfortable? What what does that say about you that you're like I should be the one uncomfortable and not these other people in the room who don't look like me? Why why does it have to be you? Mm. Well, you know why? Because folks want to call the yeah. police. <laughs> right? Oh well, yeah, true. You know, you know, it's not the safety. Yes, safety is a huge thing. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, but e- and even in the places where there are less roots, though, like with sharing and opinion, somebody makes a joke that's not funny. Why do you have to laugh? If it's not funny, it's not funny. Like, you know, you know so so get, yeah, I think it's almost like a rewiring uh, and just trying to, again, unlearning and rewiring and just saying, like, you know, there, there are things that I am able to bring my full self into. that being our full self comes with a level of risk but I think that that being able to get people to understand which parts of them are not worth compromising mm. is, is helpful and that should be a part of the I guess it should be a part of school shouldn't it it should be a part of school oh, absolutely. To, you know all the way um absolutely that's a missing part in education so I think about education as it is now it's very much about your grades and you know meeting benchmarks and and so with your lens you know what what is the responsibility of schools to provide spaces for students to understand and to develop that kind of understanding I think if you start early on and I'm thinking like K through like eight super early um, I think there just very simply needs to be space for more stories. I feel like there's a very narrow version of what an American elementary, middle, high school student is supposed to be. Um, and and while I do see the media showing a little bit more, and I, I would say dramatic media and like fiction shows a little bit more representation in there, I think that there's still, I think a lot of schools still operate on the fact that there's this one type of student. And and I don't and, and if you don't fit that one type then you're not doing something right. Um, so I think that it one thing is making space for stories of different types of students and whether that means in the types of students that you spotlight, whether that means even the types of books you read at story time. Like it could be the smallest things of of who else can I make sure that my, it reflects the students in my classroom so that they don't feel like they're out of place when they're when they're here? Um, I think as they move higher, less of a focus on grades um, and thinking of I, I know what has Stand by, something happened to their podcast. That I've dealt with is being able to, they always going to say focus more on the learning than the grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I hate standardized tests. I don't think we need them. Um, all of our research is showing that we that they're not super useful. Um, and so I think really there needs to be a paradigm shift to think, how do you focus more on learning than on grading? And, and how do you how do you make sure that students are each at their best selves without feeling like there's a, a, this arbitrary mark for everybody, regardless of ability, regardless of interest, regardless of resource? Um, it's just, it, it sets everyone, it doesn't put everyone on the same path for success. And it doesn't give them the freedom to, come to success and for whatever that looks like for them. So I think definitely more individualization within education would be really liberating and then also making space for 
more stories, more student stories. Maybe we can find less, you know, folks feeling so isolated. And then that makes me think about now, this COVID-19 has happened. We're in a pandemic. We're all in our houses. You know, you're working from home, right? How's that going? Right, right. Um, it is, it has definitely been a challenge. Now, I'll be honest, I am an introvert and a homebody. So had there not been a deadly virus that was the cause of this, then this would be perfect. (laughs) Um, but I, I think what I have found the most difficult is figuring out how to create an experience for my students that mirrors what they get in person. And I have racked my brain trying to replicate things that just you can't replicate virtually. Um, and so that that's probably been my biggest struggle with, with all of this. So I, I'll, I'll say that this experience definitely has um, held a mirror up to a lot of shortcomings within the field of higher education. That might be a whole other subject for a whole other day and a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but I would say that for me, it's been really hard to try to figure out what still feels meaningful for students mm. in in the midst of everything else. So uh, I teach a class, and it's a facilitation skills class. And so at this point in the semester, a lot of what we were doing in class, which is skills lab, practicing, um, giving feedback, running through different scenarios, really hard to do that through Zoom. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> was trying to figure out, I think my, my first knee-jerk reaction was trying to figure out, like, oh, okay, well, I'll just give them like another paper, and I'll give them this, and I'll give them something. Then I had to step back and say, girl, we are in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not this is not the time to fill up busy work. Um, and, and so it, it helped me to kind of step back and say, let's see what the students need for this experience to still be valuable. Because mm-hmm. I recognize some students are like, I can't focus on class at all. That was some of my students. I have other students who are like, I need a routine so that I don't lose it. So what can you give me to maintain some sense of normalcy? So trying to figure out how to balance the needs of all the students and saying, okay, this is what we'll give, and this is what we'll say is optional. So that if you feel like you need to do this, um, and then I pretty much just told them, like, you're all going to get the same. You're all going to get an A. I just need you to finish. Yeah. Um, that was that was my approach. And, and I would say that I found a good amount of faculty who were pretty much having the same approach, like, look, do what you can. We'll figure it out. Um, and then in the midst of that, you, you also have students who test positive, you know, and so that that ends up throwing an entire, entirely different level of need for them. So, so with so many things changing from day to day and so many factors to consider, I think the biggest thing that I've been focused on is dealing with my students as people first, and that's my philosophy in general. Um, I'm like, you're, you're a person before you're a student, yeah. and, and I want to make sure that that's honored in whichever way I can. I mean, that's really, really important to this conversation around liberation. We are more than just, you know, students in a, on a roster. We are all people, right. <laughs> you know, and that's mm-hmm. often lost. And I don't understand why. So quickly. I don't understand why. Well, so, we do understand why. Capitalism. Well, yeah, capitalism. <laughs> we do understand. Yeah, you know, we do. <laughs> but, it's, but it's also like, but why? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, why are we still moving business as usual? Why? Um, I think about the work you're doing with the Pedestal Project in particular, and you say you have dialogue-based events, and so the power of dialogue. What do you think about the power of dialogue as a, a and this is, I guess it aligns with your, you know, your belief in storytelling. Um, so how 
beneficial have those dialogue um, events been or based events been for your participants? Oh, they've been tremendous. So the the major event that we do is a series called the Pedestal Experience, and it's basically a brunch series for Black women. Um, we do about two or three a year in-person events, and we typically have panelists who can share from certain experiences, um, and, and then we also end it with a mini-workshop. So some of the things that we have talked about are perfectionism, anxiety, um, have talked about professional and personal self-worth. So those have been some of the things that we have dealt with. Sorry, my dog. <laughs> um, and so, so I think that what the most, I think, I think the most consistent feedback that we've gotten is that people didn't realize that other people dealt with it too. Um, and I think that especially when you, the trick with doing those types of events is that a lot of times people think, oh, the panelists have it all together. They have the answers. Mm. Um, and, they, and the people who are speaking, surely they figured it out. And we are very transparent. They know we're all figuring this out together. Mm. And we're here to share lessons and share um, that no one will arrive. This mm. is just how do we figure out how to get to the next step. And so I think that that's been the, the difference in what has happened with our dialogue. I would say in the wake of COVID-19, though, is same as with students has been pretty for me and I would say for everyone it's been a little bit difficult to, to replicate that experience virtually um, I have some ideas for some things that I'm going to try but I also I am really hesitant to do things right now just to do them um, and I don't and I don't I've been very thoughtful in what and how does that look in terms of like if I'm restoring validating and affirming black women how do I honor their experience of COVID-19? Like that, like that, that has to be an alignment in order to still make sense for, for the brand and for what, what I said that I was doing. So right now I'm kind of in a gray, to be honest, um, trying to figure out what that looks like right now. We still have been sharing stories and posts, um, but the, the dialogue component is still a little fuzzy um, and trying to figure out what, what feels useful and still healing um in this setting mm. um i appreciate your honesty around that um i think about honesty as another pillar to liberation <laughs> uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know uh everyone wants to come together for those you know administrators or leaders want to come together for that you know week and come up with a plan that's going to be the plan of all plans and everything's going to go back to normal and people are going to be fine and um <laughs> what is the approach that leadership and in particular in higher ed what is the approach that you believe they should be taking around you know getting into a new normal as opposed to same old thing after you know something like this happens i think the biggest thing that they should probably be doing is taking note of all of the things that not only weren't working for but that are literally crumbling like the institutions that are crumbling, the things that we noticed that, hey, we probably don't need this, but we kept it because we were just doing it just to do it. And now we see that they were absolutely 100% unnecessary. Like, for example, I think one of the biggest things that I've started to see, well, several things, but I would say one of the most recent has been a lot of people are saying, okay, you know what? Don't worry about a GRE. Don't worry about an MCAT. Just get your application in and we're going to just do what we can. Okay, well, do we ever really need it then? Like, do we ever, a lot of the things that we're having to get rid of, like, did we really need this or were these 
we think that we disguise as merit or we disguise as other things to really just be another barrier to, to education. Um, and I, I think it's exposing a lot of what, a lot of those, you know, what we didn't look at as gatekeepers and what we didn't look at as barriers to access. That we're like, okay, so now that we know that we didn't need those, don't put them back. Like, now that we know that some of the stuff wasn't working, now that we know some things were too expensive because you're giving it to them for free now, mm-hmm. what does that look like to re to readjust what your model was in the first place? Um, so I don't want us to ever go back to normal. Mm-hmm. I, I see a lot of memes that talk about that because normal wasn't working. Mm-hmm. We knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, we, but we had been doing it, so we just kept doing it. Now that we are no longer able to do it, what needs to be rebuilt? Mm-hmm. What needs to be replaced? We don't need to go back to normal. Yeah. And then you go, well, do you think people are going to really respect that things need to change? (laughs) Do you think that folks are really going to see the necessity to allow the change and not try and go backwards? Or do you think folks are really going to listen? Like in your campus, do you feel that that's the move? Or or do you feel like, yeah, but when can we get back to the, you know, Way things were feels like the, the theme, the theme song in the background. Um, you know, I I have I have to be realistic in knowing that we're talking about institutions that are centuries old, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and built on the same pillars that our nation is built on, which is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So taking that into account, I'm still realistic that there are some things that will be much harder fought battles. However, I do think that we are in a unique place now. And, I, and I, I'm faithful that there are enough people who are examining this pandemic from that lens that we will at least see marginal change pretty quickly. I think the changes that, like I think about all the student activism that happens on our campuses um, and a lot of the things that students have been fighting for and whether they've been heard or brushed aside, a lot of what a lot of institutions are having to do has been what students have been asking for all along mm. in a lot of different ways. So I'm hopeful about what student activism will look like and what what some of those things will will do in terms of just like, you know, how how are institutions able to better support people. But I know that the bigger things are gonna take longer, regardless of how much fear has pushed choices and regardless of how much loss and trauma, unfortunately, will happen as a result of this, um, I still think that there will be some more change than, than I thought was possible than before this. Mm. It's hopeful. Um, so I have... And I try to keep my hope. Yeah, you have to. I mean, you can spend a lot of energy not thinking of, here's some, you know, let's try and be, I don't know, come up with some strategies to to keep us on the right path. Like, we're going to learn from this as opposed to fall from this. Um, And so when this final question I have for you, and you can take a couple seconds if you need, but what does education as liberation look like to you? If you could put it into a sentence, education as liberation looks like what? Education as liberation looks like an abundance of resources to live the best life that I've designed for myself. And I think that that means that it doesn't have to look like what's being prescribed to me, um, but that I have the freedom to choose what what my education should bring me towards. Um, 
with, with freedom and an abundance of support and resources to do that. Where do these resources come from? Hmm. Well, I think resources could look very different. Of course, I think you can use resources financially, um, but I think more about resources as people and, and, and ideas also as a resource. And so having people who um, are able to provide spaces for you to explore and to think about, you know, what to, to play around with things that may not have been something you had entertained before. I can't count how many students I know who start college or wherever having one plan for themselves and, and leaving with a completely different plan. And I think if we if we made spaces for that much earlier, then I think students would be okay with that ambiguity and okay with saying, this is all a journey of my life. It's, it's, still, it's still a part of my life, but it's not separate from my life. Like, it's a total journey. Um, so I look at resources as not only financial, but people and ideas and, and things that will help me know that exploration is essential. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Please share your website with folks so they know where to catch you and maybe they can start signing up. Are you only local to um, Champaign-Urbana or are you looking to branch out? For now, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still local. Uh, just now, I will say there are two different ways to help. So I do have writers that work remotely from all over the country um, for the blog. So we do recruit for that once a year. And that's at uh, pedestalproject.com, P-E-D-E-S-T-A-L-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.com. And that's where you can catch up with all of our blogs. Um, all of the articles, I have 12 wonderful writers who put out wonderful content. Um, so you can find us there. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pedestal Project. So you can like us there, subscribe to things, share our stories. Um, in terms of the events, we are only in Champaign-Urbana right now because I'm kind of a one-woman show, and that's where I live. However, um, I do have interest of bringing, like, to bring the branches to a couple of different places. So um, I've kind of held off on that. It's somewhere in the three-year plan to figure out what that would look like to do something of a tour of some sort. Um, so you know, <laughs> we, have, we have a few things that we have a few things that are coming up. We're thinking about playing with apparel, some other products to sell. Thinking about what a podcast might look like. So we're playing around with a lot of different um, options. But for the meantime. Definitely visit the website and you can find us more there. You're also welcome to connect with me um, on Instagram. It's the Apple Bomb. If you know the songs, then. Okay. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> I know the song. I won't say it's copyright, but yes. <laughs> so, you know the song. Um, you can find me there. Um, and then I'm linked to the Pedestal Project ID, too. So, you can find me in the bio. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Keep doing up that wonderful work, um, specifically for you, young you black women. Um, so that they have a space where they can learn that they are enough. And, and I'm saying it like I'm not one. We <laughs> are yes. enough. We I need it too. am yep. enough. And, um, and that is how I will grow my own liberation and knowing that I am enough in my black womanness. So thank you so much to this has been Education is Liberation, hosted by Akisha McCann. Sound engineering and theme song by Eric Green. Wibble's logo and design materials by JunkDiamond.com. 
Our research assistant, Elijah McCanscreen. Learn more about us at wholebodyliteracy.com. To learn about our sponsors, visit blackhistorymedocs.com. And you can catch both of us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe, like, comment, share. Thank you.